Salesman has been in operation. Records seemingly predate the Redwood Bureau, going back to before its founding and kept in archives by interested government entities. Its presence can be seen in evidence of journals going back to the 1700s at least, with evidence of correspondence between it and its victims changing over the years. Letters, advertisements in the penny dailies, then eventually the telephone, the internet. The indirect effects of its presence are often unremarked by local police and constabularies. After all, it is unremarkable that a murderer dies themselves at the end of a long killing spree. The salesman murders were different, however, in that murders centered around a person who claimed to be pursued by an entity. The salesman, who just wanted to deliver something of fairly small monetary value, and for it, demanded a hefty price in flesh. The Bureau, with its long chain of evidence of the creature, either never learned how to contain it, or refused to. The Bureau's only interference in these cases was for cleanup duty, scrubbing electronic evidence, and making scrambled eggs of the memories of witnesses. This was how I became involved, as my testimony below shows. This unfortunate victim, one Sebastian Parker, believed he would make a name for himself by researching macabre and bizarre online legends and superstitions. He did not know what every agent of the Bureau realizes soon after joining Redwood. What you seek out also seeks you right back. I think when I started this, I was hoping that if I got lucky, I might see something. Actually seeing something would change my viewership forever. What I've learned after several years of the online video game community thing is that people are fickle creatures. They say they prefer urban legend content, but then complain if it's all too monotonous. If you try to change the format too much, they'll complain that you're becoming too experimental. Of course, these weren't the problems I had. Not yet. My viewership sat at 17 people, two of which I know are my friends from LAN parties. I was almost positive the other one is my mother. But even back then, I knew I was going to make a name for myself. I knew I was on the path to becoming someone. I was going to be famous. Maybe like many other teenagers, I had trouble making my peace with going to school and getting some middling, miserable job in a cubicle with messages popping up in a communication app, trying to manipulate me into action. Where are we with this, Gene? 
Gene, we have to talk about your performance. Most bosses didn't get what my deal was, and I didn't get them either. How the heck do you spend your whole life as some cog in a great machine, ground down to dust? I'd seen my mom come home enough with that vacant, dazed look on her face, sit down at the kitchen table and make her way through half a bottle of wine, her eyes glossed over, watching television in the dark. I knew then, that wasn't the life for me. So when the guidance counselor asked me if I was sure about dropping out of college, I only had to think about my zombie-faced mom to make my decision. I dropped out of school, got a part-time job, and started making videos as a content creator. I know what you're thinking. Maybe that's why I also sought out the thing known as the salesman, because the channel wasn't doing so good. I was scrambling, working double shifts at the box department store and trying to get any of my videos above 50 views. When I covered John Wayne Gacy on a lark, my viewership jumped. People liked the true crime stuff, especially my narrative that Gacy had been in conversation with a primordial entity, a demon, who he later claimed helped him carry out his crimes. I had made up the entity, but it got me my first semi-viral video. I don't know what did it. Maybe it was all my analysis of creatures looking out from his paintings. Something I'd admittedly stolen from a weird conversation I'd had on a message board. That appealed to people. That there was something out there having a real effect on the world. Something that could get at you through your radio, through your phone, could come through your computer screen. I went looking for more serial killers with more supernatural leanings. The channel was called Supernatural Mysteries, so if it had a vague connection to the supernatural, I felt I could cover it. Even if there were real dead bodies, real crime scenes, I was ready to completely jump ship and reformat as true crime to be honest. My viewers wanted the blood not just the creepy factor. I first heard about the salesman in a conversation about all the serial killers who never got caught. I crossed paths with a user, Red6133, who wanted to help me with my research. I could tell he was one of these older 30-something lonely gamer types ready to dump a buttload of esoteric knowledge on me. But his interest in the supernatural meant that he was a good researcher, having apparently amassed a wealth of knowledge about the subject during late-night documentary marathons. He'd listened to the podcast, too, said he was a fan, and I was floored. Red let me know that if I was really interested in covering supernatural serial killers, I should check into the salesman. Prolific was the word he used, working for decades without getting caught. He was also still in operation. How do you know about him then? I asked. You can call him and talk to him, and he'll come kill you, Red told me. 
The man who'd caught the Golden State Killer once said there were at least 2,000 serial killers in operation in the United States. Most were never even investigated by police, some moving around too much to show up on the radar of any one department. Only the bad ones got famous, Red said. The screw-ups who bragged to friends about their strange desires, or who got cocky, left their gloves and rope on their passenger seat during a traffic stop. The good ones operated on a completely different level. Enigmas. Untouchable and unkillable. The salesman was one of the good ones. They say the good ones often have help, Red wrote. Good ones? I asked. Yes, Red said. Someone, something, is helping them. Keeping them safe while they do their work. I was in my apartment, listening to Red. I had my comforter up on my legs, and the chill spread up my arms and legs. Most serial killers, there's a geographic area, a consistent murder weapon or method of murder, and a constant victim demographic. Blonde-haired college women, prostitutes, homosexual men. The salesman had none of these. The police are always so quick to dismiss the patterns of the salesman, Red told me, because there was no demographic pattern. Red 6133 told me that the salesman had been active since the 1920s. Although, some people online said he'd been around for much longer than that. Red had seen a letter from the 1700s that some people attributed to the salesman. An advertisement for anything the reader could desire, delivered anywhere. I asked how that was possible, and Red said, You wanted a story, right? Aren't you supposed to be the investigator? He told me that the salesman killed people to stay alive that long. But he could only kill people who answered his call. That was the legend. For several hundred years, people had been harassed by someone who claimed to be selling something. People picked up quick that there was something strange about the salesman. But by that point, it didn't matter. He found them, tracked them down, and killed everyone around them, culminating in a killing of the caller themselves and the delivery of the package. Often, mysterious deaths or accidents started with family members, neighbors, people the called upon had interacted with on a daily basis. The killings were never done in the same way, either, though they were all equally gruesome and grotesque. Eventually, Finally, the salesman killed the would-be buyer, too. It didn't take long for me to find ten pattern killings matching this sort of story. I was off for the next day from work and downloaded a Tor browser, which helped me connect some very strange dots. A panicked video of a victim, some nondescript older man, confessing that he'd gotten a call from a bizarre salesperson. But now, he wasn't sure. In the video, you could see him. Four days worth of stubble smeared onto a face shadowed with a lack of sleep. 
It had taken his wife, his children, and all the people on the floor of the building where he worked. Every single one. He said he didn't have that much time left, and he'd bought a gun. And just then, the video ends. And you said I could call this person? I asked Red. My hands were white, maybe from the cold in the basement, or maybe from my own fear, taking the blood from my extremities. If you wanted to see for yourself, that's the only way to know. I was able to separately verify most of the stories I'd found. Like a puzzle put together incorrectly with scissors and tape. The news blamed most of the killings on random accidents. An uptick in homicides in an area experiencing a downturn. The newspapers were compelling, but to really scare my readers, I needed this man's voice on tape. Hadn't anyone recorded it? I just wanted an email, a phone number, something I could add to my notes to assure myself that it was real, and not just some internet legend. There weren't any of those. Recordings, I mean. But someone told me if you want his voice recorded so bad, you could call. First Contact a screenshot of a caller ID was sent to me from a dropped link. Freedom avail today, the caller ID said, and then a number below. The caller ID scrolled to say recent sales before starting over again. It wasn't an area code I recognized, and when I googled it, I got something very boring. It was a very real place. Somewhere in Idaho. I don't know where I'd been thinking he would call from. I spent a whole day with the number on my nightstand. I think that I thought it was some big joke. Those idiots on that message board were playing an obvious prank on me. What were the chances he was real? That this guy, Red, was just telling me a good story? He was a fan of the podcast, wasn't he? Maybe he just wanted to be famous. I picked up my phone, taking my time thumbing each number. It was the middle of the night. Outside, cars roared past my apartment. The street a sickly yellow from the streetlights. The phone rang and rang and rang. Just when I was about to hang up, I heard a click. Thank you for contacting us. A recorded message shouted into the receiver, the volume much too loud. Someone will be with you shortly. Then it hung up. I was left there in my room, still holding the phone in my hand. Was that it? Then my phone rang. I stared at it for several long seconds. I couldn't chicken out now. I picked up my phone, making sure to get out my pocket recorder, and answered the call. Immediately, I switched to speakerphone. The voice on the other end of the line was cold, 
like it was speaking over a very old phone line. A vibrating crackling like music on an old record player. Are you interested in what I am offering? I felt my throat tighten. What? What are you offering? Then there was a pause. Then this voice, which the longer I listened to, grated on the insides of my ears. You look so cold. Maybe a nice pair of mittens. I watched my hands shaking as I held the phone. They were pale white. My blinds were closed. I glanced around my room, feeling the faint prickle of eyes in every shadow, in every dark spot of my apartment. I'll come bring them to you. Then a click, and the line was dead. I didn't sleep at all that night. I tried to piece together what had happened. My mind played every noise, every thump. The cars roaring by outside, every distant shout, as if it were the salesman coming to bring me what I'd ordered. If it was a prank, it was certainly an elaborate one. He'd seemed excited on the phone, the salesman. And why had he sounded so strange? Like he was speaking through ripped up vocal cords from somewhere very far away. But that wasn't it. It sounded almost like he was speaking through several different vocal cords, fighting to be heard over each other. Eventually, from exhaustion, I fell asleep. The next morning, I checked my recorder, only to find five minutes of dead, static air. No voice, no conversation. There was a part of me that had wanted it all to be a dream. I'd check my phone and see that I'd hallucinated the whole thing. The Idaho number was there on my phone, though. It was real. I messaged Red to see what his advice was. Just play it out, Red said. Document everything. I thought about my mom, sitting on her couch. A man with a cut-open neck, holding a package, knocking on her porch. A heavy weight of dread filled my stomach. If he's real, he'll go after the people around me. How do I protect them? Should I call everyone and warn them? Red told me not to do that. That might be how he gets in touch with them. Maybe he just follows me around, picking them off immediately after I ensure that they're okay. I thought about making a list, sending them all messages, telling them to take a vacation, get out of town. It might as well be a checklist. I need to break my routine, I told Red. Throw him off. Sure, Red said. Get out of town, maybe do some research. I asked Red about any of the other victims, recent ones. Maybe that had surviving family members, friends, people who had second-hand accounts of what happened next. 
That's when Red told me about Andrew Gregory, a 27-year-old retail manager in Tanager Falls. Andrew Gregory, whose family had been murdered very gruesomely in their house, presumably by a home invader, while Andrew slept downstairs in the basement. The police in his town linked him to the crime, and in the two days that passed between, he'd supposedly gone nuts. That was as much as Red knew and could put together from a few newspaper reports. He'd died in custody, brutally murdered in his cell. There had been a small scandal, which the town mostly forgot about. One of the police, one of the few that hadn't left the force soon after, still lived in town. It was just a few hours' drive. Warning, signal interruption detected. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Signal connection restored. Tanager Falls. I brought little with me. My recorder, my phone and laptop, a cardboard carton of ramen noodles, and a suitcase. I wouldn't be coming back to my apartment. Not for a while. Not until I knew it was safe. The town of Tanager Falls wasn't too small that it didn't have a few chain hotels to choose from. A local diner named Hogan's, with a scalded coffee where I could take advantage of free Wi-Fi. A library so quiet, I swear I could hear my heart beating and the small police station, which showed none of the signs of a place once drenched in incredible horror. The police station was a quaint hubbub of noise, the demurred conversation of two detectives over a glass divider, the crackle of a minor league game through an old portable radio, the clicking of keyboard keys and monitors that seemed nearly as old as I am. I received all the skeptical looks from every uniformed cop as I sat in the waiting room, and for the few that knew what I was doing there, stared at me harder, like I was tracking in mud or dog poop into their immaculate station. The cop's name was Brinley, Howard Brinley. His salt and pepper hair was neatly groomed into a buzz cut, 
That, along with his pristine, graying mustache, made him look like he'd come out of another century. Old school police. He offered me coffee that tasted of oil and cedar wood, black as shadow. Andrew Gregory. It was a name that Tanager Falls had tried to forget. Andrew came from a good family, Officer Brindley told me. Mom and Dad sticking it out, even though the year before, they'd lost their other son in a car accident that had put a black cloud over the entire community. Good, religious folk. But after his brother died, Andrew turned into someone else. Got involved with a bunch of internet weirdos. His folks didn't know anything was going on until Andrew was way beyond helping. You think Andrew did it? Officer Brindley stared into his mug of coffee, holding it in his hands like balancing delicate china. I think he opened a door. He couldn't get shut. Some kids at his school went missing, disappeared off the face of the planet. They found them later. Smith and Leandro, or what was left of them in the woods. Parts had been sent out to a lab for identification, and there wasn't much in the way of fingerprints, or even dental, to find. Their bones were splintered, hacked off, partially destroyed. It wasn't until later that Brinley put together that they had been over at Andrew Gregory's house the night before, playing video games. Andrew's neighbor was next. An old man named Earl Roberts didn't show up for his weekly coffee with the other vets at Hogan's. He hadn't missed it in a decade, not since his wife died. His friends forced open the front door of his house and found a cathedral of horrors. Someone had taken their time taking Roberts apart and decorating the room with him. The smell was so unbearable in that place. The shifting, swarming clouds of death flies. The sickly, sweet tang of death hovered in the air like a sour cloud. The HOA called it a loss and bulldozed his house. No leads for that one either. Other than that, it was possibly related to the Smith-Leandro double murder. Here, Brindley leaned in. Though the Smith-Leandro double was written up as a transient attack. Some homeless guy, probably. Again, Andrew Gregory had been over there the day before, helping Earl Roberts with a loose gutter. Brindley leaned back, letting his weight sink into the aged leather chair. Even if he hadn't done it, he was certainly a person of interest in both investigations. I fought very hard to pick him up, but his parents are, well, were, very involved in the church. It was a no. That lasted about a day. Andrew Gregory said he was in the basement all that night. Didn't hear any of the noises, the screams that must have carried through the neighborhood. That drew the crowd to the street outside. Officer Brindley had heard the 911 call. He'd listened to it damn near a hundred times. They put him in a cell by himself. After a several hour long interrogation, Brindley had been the primary on that. His last case as a full detective, before requesting the transfer to desk work. The kid wasn't much of anything. Really scrawny, 
with a rash of pimples and scar tissue over a mass of hair. He didn't have it in him to do something like that, though any detective worth his salt could tell that the kid was hiding something. Maybe he knew who did it. Maybe he felt he was responsible. Brindley was the only one who thought the kid didn't do it. There were people gathering outside the police station. A mob of people calling for justice. A few reporters, even. Brindley went outside to calm them down, to tell them that they were investigating it, and that very soon they would discover what had happened. I never got my chance, Brindley said. Inside the police station was chaos. Police officers ran throughout the building, looking for the murderer, scrambling with their guns drawn. Brindley sprinted up to the interrogation room where he'd left his suspect. It was impossible to tell where the boy's body ended and where the room began. There's ten pints of blood in every person's body, and it covered everything in the room like a painting. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. He'd been more than murdered, mutilated, destroyed. His body obliterated, but there were no more killings after that. Nor were there any leads to the killer. As quickly as he'd come, he'd disappeared. The weird thing was, it all stopped after that, Brindley said. Just everything. Even the people in the town wanted to have it over and done with, and never think about it again. He leaned forward again, and I caught the whiff of his oaky, sugary body smell again. Underneath it, a sharp tang of alcohol. To be honest, nobody really listens to me anymore, Brindley said. I've been writing this desk since it all happened, because I wanted to keep looking into all of this. Because nobody else did. I'm bad luck. He coughed and the rattling hack went on for far too long. I realized that the rest of the station had been staring, if not outright listening to what Officer Brindley was saying. I realized he was right. Brindley's office desk was bare. He didn't have anything to do. He just sat there, in the past, trying to put together the pieces of the strange puzzle and the rest of the station watched the conversation happen like they were waiting to pounce. Like they wanted me to go away so they could go back to their lives. Did you call him? Officer Brindley asked. If you did, the same thing is going to happen to you. Everywhere you go, it's going to happen to you. Then his phone rang. He stared at it. Officer Brindley told me that nobody called him, that the number wasn't even connected. They told him they didn't want to distract him from his very important work, which was sarcastic, of course. He lifted it from the receiver, slow, like it was something that could hurt him. His eyes started to well up as he listened and his lip trembled. Then. He handed the phone over to me. It's... for you. On the other end of the line, the salesman said, Your delivery is running a little late. 
but should be to you soon. I was able to find out later that the day after Andrew Gregory was murdered inside the police station, a delivery appeared on his doorstep. A football jersey signed by a professional football player. No return address. Andrew Gregory, as they'd arrested him at his house, was recorded by a witness to have said, All I wanted was a stupid football jersey. At least in the end, he got his wish. Leaving the police station, I felt that I was being followed, but not in a way that I could have explained. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up straight, prickling with electricity. I thought about going back to my hotel room, to the strange, smoke-smelling, putrid room, waiting for him to come. Part of me didn't want to be alone for what I knew was coming, but I imagined Hogan's, the aftermath, customers splayed out all over the walls. Plate glass windows painted with blood and ichor. The chef's mutilated body sizzling on the griddle. Anywhere I went, he could follow. Part of me still, after hearing the story, didn't want to believe it would happen to me. But it seemed inevitable now. I ended up at Hogan's anyway, an hour later. If the end was coming, I didn't want to be alone. It wasn't what I expected in the diner. It was simply empty. No customers. The television above the linoleum counter playing the news. A sizzle came from the griddle in the back, but there wasn't anyone inside. No customers, no staff. The news anchor on the television was speaking in stilted hiccups. The Tanager Falls police station had been attacked by some sort of an animal. The reporter on the scene was standing behind two lines of police tape, with over a dozen sheriff's vehicles forming a sort of barricade. The reporter, still shaken, said that a distress call came from the Tanager Falls police station, along with multiple reports of gunfire. Screams came from inside the building, the reporter said, though in the past hour, nobody had been able to contact anyone inside. The griddle sizzled. They showed an old picture of me on television. The sheriff's office is seeking information on this guest who came by the police station earlier today and is now wanted for questioning with this incident. The sheriff believed that he may in some way be related to the Andrew Gregory killings but refused to designate him as anything other than a person of interest. Then, the kitchen. That's where they all were. Cut up and ready to be served. The old men, the cranky waitress, the fry cook, the owner. The room reeked of boiled, salty chicken and smoldering clothes. I felt a green whirl of nausea building up in my stomach. All these bodies turned into meat. I've been using this recorder to keep track of my investigation. This will be my last recording.
I have a strange tingling feeling throughout my body. My picture is up on the television. I am famous. Behind me, I just heard the dinner bell ring. He's here. Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 0500, the salesman, has been recorded to have attacked Tanager Falls twice, once responsible for the death of Andrew Gregory and associated parties, and once around the investigation of would-be vlogger Sebastian Parker. I was sent in after the second pattern killing, particularly to deal with the survivors of the town who were starting to talk about both incidents with troubling amounts of publicity. A metacognitive agent was released into the water supply, removing both incidents from the minds of the citizens, with mixed results. I had advised against its usage on a population so big, in so concentrated a dosage, but Redwood was adamant that evidence of the salesman's presence in the town be completely eradicated. Some do remember the strange massacres happening several years apart, but because of social suggestion by a Redwood comms team, led by myself, interviews were conducted that implied, via manipulative suggestion, that both Andrew Gregory and Sebastian Parker were mentally ill teenagers who had been spurned on by satanic cult messaging. During my interviews, however, those that retained their memory of the events the clearest, even after the use of our metacognitive, were adamant that both Andrew Gregory and Sebastian Parker had done the killings themselves. One woman had seen the vlogger Sebastian Parker walk out of the police station covered in blood and holding a cleaver, one article missing from the restaurant known as Hogan's Diner. Redwood agents are unsure still, after frequent investigations, about whether the salesman is an entity or simply the suggestion of a future violent act caused by a phone call. If it is an entity, it is able to gain entry to any building, through any locked door, and eviscerate in mass quantities so silently that people in adjacent rooms cannot hear it kill, save only for the screams it provokes. If it is a suggestion, it must do something to the people convinced to kill. My own investigation confirms that the final victims of the salesman would have had to possess a near-impossible tolerance to pain. Andrew Gregory was said to have been completely flayed alive, while Sebastian Parker was dismembered completely, save for his right hand, which was still attached but missing its fingers. Skin matching his own DNA was found between his teeth, possibly corroborating my own hypothesis that they committed the murders under hypnotic, supernatural suggestion. What's more, spent shell casings for both 12-gauge shotguns and for 9mm pistols were recovered at the Tanager police station. Both bullets and shotgun shells recovered were pancakes. Ballistic experts confirmed that those bullets had contacted with a material causing near 100% deformation, meaning whatever they aimed at was either wearing military-grade armor or possessed a unique skin toughness impervious to small arms. If my hypothesis is correct, then whatever made the victims immune to pain also made them impervious to most of it, save the self-inflicted sort. As evidenced in Parker's audio confession record, even he himself, when confronted with evidence that he is responsible, does not believe it. Investigations into the internet user Red6133 turned up very little. Curious his name was Red, which I noted to my superiors despite the write-up it earned me. 
In other files and following other cleanup efforts, other veteran agents I worked with alluded to road pharmacological and metacognitive drugs that had failed in various testing stages. Veterans have confessed to me as part of other investigations that rogue metacognitives sometimes found their way into small populations, requiring monitoring and cleanup. Perhaps the salesman is one of these, a metacognitive drug capable of causing hallucinations and mass murder. It is possible that Red 6133 was a Redwood agent testing out the abilities of a rogue metacognitive drug in a controlled environment. Typically, getting a hold of enough metacognitive agents for a population dispersal takes days. But during this incident, we were cleared for use in a few hours, with the delivery arriving the next morning. It was quick, even for the Bureau. Regardless, officially there is no last known location for the phenomenon known as the Salesman, and it is listed as at large in all relevant documents. An addendum to this document. During my own investigation, I found a phone number slipped under my hotel room door, linked to the relevant Idaho address Sebastian Parker offered in his confession. I burned the paper immediately, driving to the location only after all other fieldwork was finished. At that location, I found only an old warehouse, last listed as a mail-order retailer seller half a century ago. Through a dusty window, I was able to make out one advertisement, hanging from a poster on an ancient desk. Relentless salesman, it read. We'll find what you want, and chase you to the ends of the earth to deliver. RBP report 0050 deactivated. I'm Josh Tomar, host of Redwood Bureau. Thank you for listening. Redwood Bureau is a horror fiction podcast and part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. For more dreadful terrors, follow Redwood Bureau on Spotify and iTunes, and check out our other podcasts like Unexplained Encounters and Freaky Folklore on your favorite podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Twitch under username Tomamoto, T-O-M-A-M-O-T-O, and my voiceover is featured in a wide variety of your favorite video games, anime, and other animated shows. Until next time, don't forget, this world is a strange one. (laughs) 